All right, Jeff. So we're going to be chatting a little bit about milk. We're going to be chatting a little <laughs> bit about electric vehicles. We're going to be chatting uh, growth of mid and high-rise apartment buildings. Uh, and we're also going to be chatting Walmart's uh, estimates and what is boosting their e-commerce presence. So, Jeff, why don't we start off with our first story, give the people the rundown, and then we'll give some hot takes here. Yes, yeah, starting the day off with a little bit of milk is never a bad thing. Um, but this is or not, is it? I was going to say <laughs> this is this is actually not great news for Dean Foods, a Dallas-based company. They're straight up seventy-five, just uh, right in like the West Village area of Dallas, not far from where we're sitting right now. Uh, they filed for Chapter Eleven bankruptcy on Monday. Uh, they've really been negatively impacted by milk alternatives and also just the increase of price of milk. Getting it to market seems to be a challenge. Um, some of the data behind this bankruptcy, some of the, the influences, the factors that led to this news, uh, prices have just gone up 19% for, for milk in general uh, this year alone. So that's a pretty stark increase in one year. Um, and a big thing also is that a lot of brands like Walmart, for example, have been moving to sort of private label brands. Uh, it's cheaper for them to produce. They can keep everything kind of in-house and thus making it cheaper for consumers, so they're uh, more likely to buy that. So when Dean Foods loses, loses a client like Walmart, something of that scale, that's a huge hit. And um, you couple that with some of the alternatives on the rise. We've seen that in milk, clearly, with uh, almond milk and soy milk, all of these different. I mean, everything seems to have a milk these days. I sound like an old man kind of saying that, but it's true. I mean, you see how many times when you look at the shelf, you, you see... 2% whole milk, and then it seems like the rest of the shelf is some sort of alternative protein, water-based, you know, all these different crazy things that people are really liking, though. Um, and you've seen the same kind of thing actually happen over in alcohol, where you have all these hard seltzer options, uh, cutting into beer sales. That's kind of been a struggle for the big beer brands, and they're now looking at alternatives. How can they kind of spice things up and provide consumers with a healthier, uh, new option? So. These are just um, challenges for these legacy brands, these legacy products like milk. I mean, you think milk is always just going to be something that every consumer wants and needs in their right. fridge. But how do you innovate in that space and how do you stay relevant? Um, it's tough. And, and clearly it's having an impact on some of the biggest brands in the industry. Yeah, you know, uh, milk, you know, for a long time really um, dominated as a um you know as a a, a go-to drink the marketing campaign for it was right. pretty phenomenal i mean uh it's an all-timer it's an all-timer i mean we have a peak successful campaign at got milk um and that ran for i think almost like 20 years something or something like that, that yeah. it, it died about five years ago i think um but milk consumption as a whole was you know like it <clears throat> the health craze around it was kind of manufactured, like not in an insidious way, yeah. just in kind of like a, okay, we want to make sales on milk. So let's, you know, <laughs> say that it makes you healthy and, you know, there are nutrients in milk, mm -hmm. but, uh, you know, the majority of people are born lactose intolerant. So, wow. you know, milk isn't like a necessity. Cow's milk isn't a necessity for us. And I think a little bit of, you know, science wake up, with a health craze, uh, you know, people drinking and consuming more bottled water, um, as well as the alternatives, like you said, growing mm -hmm. everything from almond to soy to coconut milk, rice milk. Uh, I think people are just 
not, you know, like milk isn't really part of the breakfast culture as much anymore. Uh, it's not as part of just like American culture. You gotta gotta have your glass of milk with right, every meal. Right. You know, that's just not really uh, a prevailing like social myth anymore. <laughs> Um, and I think a lot of it has to do with milk marketing just it is pretty dead. Like, there's not concerted, fresh milk marketing out there at the level of a got milk. Mm-hmm. And so I think what we're seeing here is kind of a – it is uh, the market kind of assuming that milk will last forever because it's milk. And clearly what we're seeing here is that it might not. <laughs> and, you know, if milk wants to maintain its um, its kingly status, it's probably going to have to come up with a fresh marketing strategy, either the entire dairy industry mm-hmm. or, uh, you know, something like Dean Foods individually. They're going to need to boost their marketing right. game. Yeah. And one thing that also just caught my attention with this story from a B2B perspective is just the fact that freight and fuel costs have risen. And that is just making it more expensive to get the milk to the store and ultimately the consumer. So it's something as outside of their realm as, you know, fuel that is having an impact here. And I mean, that's obviously an issue for any company that has to mass distribute its product. But, um, you know, we've, we've basically spent this whole segment talking about these consumer trends and all of that. And it's obviously a huge, huge part of it, but sometimes something is, fickle at, and I mean, it's not fickle, but fuel prices, something that is not part of your product line, you're not your innovation, you know, it might even be out of your control to some degree. So that's an interesting thing to see is that uh, something like that can, can still cause a huge problem for you. Right. And, uh, you know, I, I don't doubt that um, other, you know, social trends like being vegetarian or being Mm -hmm. vegan, uh, that has definitely taken to the mainstream For in sure. a way that, um, you know, goes beyond just like joking about, oh, you're vegan, you know, or like, right, or right. like, <laughs> I mean, that or is... or in like the Portlandia like satirical right. way that you often think of vegans, <laughs> it, uh, you know, it's really become a mainstay of just American uh, culinary culture, mm-hmm. um, and. I feel like that mixed with probably like, you know, some some animal rights activism mixed with like we've seen here, just downward trends in the market itself. It's just not milk's time to shine right now. (laughs) And if milk wants to continue to shine uh, and, uh, you know, maintain that staple niche in the market, Mm -hmm. it's just going to have to, I think, change up its marketing game more than anything. Yeah. And I wonder just briefly here at the end of the segment with things like veganism becoming more mainstream, it's still probably a very, I mean, how many percent or what percent of Americans are vegan? Probably a tiny percent, but the influence that that movement or just healthier, you know, conscious decisions have had. So take someone like me, I'm not vegan, I'm not a vegetarian, but maybe when I go to the grocery store, I will look for an almond milk just because I'm kind of inundated constantly by the culture Oh, maybe consider a healthier option. So right. If you're losing me once a week, and you're lo- you know that just ripples through. So it's not necessarily if you're losing Jeff Short. Come on, you're folks. losing your yeah. biggest <laughs> milk guy out there. Yeah. So right. So it just has a huge ripple effect. But um, yeah. So we'll see uh, where milk will go from here. Yes, I know. Very strange. <laughs> Very strange development in the milk world. <laughs> 
All right, folks, now we're going from milk to batteries. <laughs> big big switch. Yep. Don't drink batteries, please. Um, so, in case you didn't know, Volkswagen is investing $800 million in a new Tennessee-based factory expansion, which is going to include a battery pack plant. So, really what we're seeing here is that Volkswagen is investing locally, and by locally I mean in the United States, to expand its electric vehicle hub and to really try to create another mm, another production arm for what everyone is saying is the future right. of the automotive industry. So globally, the Volkswagen Group plans to commit uh, almost $50 billion through 2023, and this is towards the development of um, the production of electric vehicles as well as any um, subsidiary digital services that come with an, uh, an e-vehicle mm -hmm. um, or, you know, with some of the automation that comes with a, a Tesla, for example, right. like bringing that into Volkswagen vehicles. And the Chattanooga factory expansion uh, is going to include 564,000 square feet of additions to the body shop, and it's expected to create about 1,000 new jobs, uh, which, you know, is always exciting. We always want to see job creation. Uh, this just takes me to where we're at with the automotive market today because on one hand electric vehicles everyone says you know they're the next evolution the step forward for the automotive industry however in 2019 electric vehicles only made up two percent of global automotive sales uh, you know there's a great quote from Nissan CEO Carlos uh, Gosen I think that's how you say his last name <laughs> this was in 2010 he said, this was his hot take, that by 2020, 10% of the auto market worldwide would be electric. Well, we're a month away. That clearly didn't happen. <laughs> it's going to be a big December. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Big December, folks. Everyone buy your Teslas. Um, yeah, so the fact that we are stagnating at about 2% at the end of the year um, and not hitting that peak 10% that was envisioned uh, is not a great sign. Uh, electric vehicles... I think especially in the United States, they need to displace gas-powered car sales to reach any sort of major stake in the market. Because in 2018, fewer than 400,000 yeah. were sold. Um, that's weak. Right. Weak numbers. You know, uh, so where is the electric vehicle market going to go? Is Volkswagen investing in the future or, you know, are... Are they following a trend or are they setting a trend? Yeah. You know, because at this point, I think the the market is still so uh, underdeveloped that a, a a development like this, an expansion and an investment like this from a Volkswagen, could be an industry driver, not just like riding the wave. Yeah. No. I mean, it's basically it's a it's a bet. I mean, I think everyone from what you read and hear is anticipating an electric vehicle future, but right now it has not seemed to take off in the way that people were predicting at least, yeah, like you said, 10 years ago, where those are, I mean, you're predicting a decade out, it's obviously tough, but I think people probably would have guessed that we'd be a little bit farther along in this realm. Um, so it is exciting to always see that a company is still making a huge investment in it. And I do feel like I had the confidence to say that, you know, electric vehicles are going to be where more of the investment goes in the future and as they become more affordable and you get 
you know, the manufacturers of parts that will help out. It gets cheaper and more accessible, easier to bring to market. Those things are all, I think, coming and it's being worked on. But it is, like you said, I mean, it's hardly making a dent as of right now, especially, you know, I mean, China's actually leading the way, which is kind of funny right now to me. I would not have guessed that. I thought America would probably be at the forefront of it. And I think America is doing some great things. I and mean, this is another good positive sign. Um, but it has a long way to go. And we'll see if bringing these kind of plants here will kind of spur innovation. And I also want to point everyone to think about uh, the job creation side of this. Mm-hmm. The fact that it says, you know, a thousand new jobs are going to come from this plant. I wonder, and I think everyone should be thinking, are these completely new jobs? A thousand fresh new jobs to the industry? Or is this a thousand needed positions that are going to replace a thousand old positions Mm -hmm. to a degree, right? Are we trying to transition workers over into an electric vehicle manufacturing world? uh, Or is this an investment in getting new skilled engineers and new, uh, you know, new floor workers in the field. Mm-hmm. So um, it's always necessary, I think, to keep in mind how these kinds of choices are going to affect the workers uh, and whether or not you know we're keeping them in mind with the growth of this market. Though, you know, 2% globally, it's not a huge stake yet. Right, so right. we'll see, but um, I'm curious to see how Volkswagen is going to uh, integrate those thousand new jobs. Mm-hmm. All right, Jeff, we're going to take a short break When we come back, we're going to be uh, chatting with Doug Ressler, Manager of Business Intelligence at Yardi Systems. We're going to be chatting about high and mid-rise apartment buildings and how they're, for the first time in three decades, overshadowing low rises. We're going to be asking him some questions about that market. We'll be right back. Have you ever thought to yourself, podcasts are pretty cool. I should use one to market my company. Good news. You're not alone. But where do you start? MarketSkills Thought Leadership Club makes it easy to dive into the world of B2B podcasting. With in-house podcast production, audio hosting, and more, MarketSkill can be your podcast partner that sets you up as a thought leader in your industry, creating the content that powers B2B. For more information, head to marketscale.com and find out what thousands of companies already know to be true, that podcasting is the future of thought leadership in B2B marketing. Today's content is brought to you by MarketScale. Do you run a B2B business? Nobody creates more podcasts, videos, case studies, and blogs for B2B marketers like you than MarketScale. Ask us how we can help you today. All right, Mr. Jeff, what are we exploring today with Mr. Doug Resler? Yeah, so we're really happy that Doug can join us here because we just got some new data from Yardi Systems and a a company that's part of their family called Rent Cafe. They examine uh, trends in terms of building numbers, you know, what kind of buildings are being built, where are they being built, for what price, and all these trends over the last decade or so. It's been really fun to follow month over month. I've been getting these reports from them. And as we come to the end of a decade, which is something that uh, we haven't really talked about much and I'm not even thinking we're coming to the end of a decade it's so nuts. to see the full slate of the 2010s and the trends um, in residential and commercial buildings has been really exciting so you alluded to it before the break we're kind of talking about how high-rise apartments are now a little bit more prevalent than mid and low rises so we wanted to see 
What kind of impact is that having on cities? Why are high rises uh, booming right now? And what does that mean for people and businesses around these kind of apartment buildings? So uh, we're going to bring Doug on to answer. All right. Mr. <laughs> Doug Resler, Manager of Business Intelligence at Yardy Systems. How are you doing today? Good. Thanks for having me, folks. Absolutely. Pleasure getting to chat today. So if you had to sum it up or give your hot take what do you think is the number one contributing factor to this rise of high-rises? Well, I think the number one is obviously population and employment growth, uh, followed by affordability. And so you look at the population or the demographic of renters, you look at job proximity, uh, you look at how much do I spend for housing versus how much do I spend for transportation, uh, and what is my lifestyle? So I think that you know it's a complicated issue obviously, because you're looking at zoning. Uh, You know, you could, if you wanted to put up a a high-rise in Manhattan, it would be a lot different than the one you did in Omaha, Nebraska, for Mm -hmm. uh, example. So one of the things that you're looking at is availability of land, density, zoning, uh, construction costs, things like that, um, to be able to get there. Now, one of the things that we are seeing is trends in terms of walkability, in terms and that doesn't ne- just necessarily mean urban core. Uh, it uh, could be walkability in terms of I want to have infrastructure of like grocery stores. I want to have retail, mixed use, things like that readily available uh, in terms of my general area within a three-mile radii or things like that. So we are seeing a proclivity towards that. Yeah. Um, are these numbers being skewed by places like a New York where there are you know, tons of high-rises, or is this seriously a trend that is kind of permeating the whole country, whether it is Omaha well, or New York or L.A.? You do see trends. I mean, it's probably much more prevalent in the Northeast okay, uh, where land is, you know, is so uh, much more, um, you know, unavailable. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you have West Coast, that, but the – the West Coast or the Southwest, things like that, people are also very conscious of urban sprawl. And so right. those things are starting to take hold. So what you see is that people want to a build up as opposed to build out. Because when you build out, uh, you know, do the jobs follow the housing? Probably not. So if I'm working, you know, downtown in L.A., uh, I don't want to necessarily be living in Riverside. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think that one of the things that you look for is how not to increase this urban sprawl and at the same time be able to satisfy uh, the affordability issue of housing uh, for those that rent or buy. And then what about the professionals that are actually designing these and getting them up? Are they happy with this trend? Is this something that uh, architects and uh, you know, c- construction management um, companies are looking forward to you know chomping at basically I, or is... I, I guess it would depend it would depend the time when you ask them because uh it may not be happy but you know building higher as opposed to building mid-size or garden style uh, types of apartments uh take a little bit longer they take a little bit longer in terms of getting the paperwork through uh you know being able to contract find the right type of construction development people that type of thing so uh, they take a little bit longer in terms of zoning, uh, dotting all the T's and C's uh, in terms of your contact. There's an awful lot of uh, nimbyism 
not in my backyard uh, that can be has to be broached in terms of if you're going to put up uh, in Buckhead a large high-rise type of uh, uh, building, you have to be conscious of the fact of the local community, uh, what's built there now, what uh, the local population foresees, uh, because people just don't want necessarily huge high-rises coming in uh, if it's a, you know, a garden style or a very sedate type of community. Yeah. Are these high rises? I mean, I think when people think of a high rise, they typically think of a luxury building. Is that the case? And then I guess on top of that, would that in any way make it any more susceptible to an economic downturn where vacancies would increase because it is more expensive or because of that uh, surrounding area where they are walkable, they do have restaurants, retail, grocery around them. Does that sort of make it safer because people will always want to live closer to those kind of amenities? Uh, we have uh, at Yarny Matrix, uh, we have a, a context, what we call a context rating system that the Rent Cafe folks uh, sort to and things like that. And what it does is it classifies uh, property and classifies the location where the property is at. A's are better, B's, C's, that type of thing. Right. And what we and what we have found is, to your first comment about, are they more luxury? No, not necessarily. Hmm. Uh, we have B's uh, that are high rise, just like A's are high rise. So it isn't the proclivity towards luxury. Now, what you may see in a high rise is you may see a more luxurious type of unit configuration say like a penthouse or things like that. You may see them scattered. Yep. But some of the developers, too, also have the consideration to be able to get funding uh, that they had a, to put in a certain amount of units. Uh, I'm not saying all of them do this, but I'm saying, you know, to get the funding and things like that, well, I'm going to put in so many affordable units uh, in my, you know, building to be able to assure myself of a certain funding rate and things like that. All right, we've been chatting with Doug Resler, Manager of Business Intelligence at Yardy Systems. Doug, thank you for your time this morning. We'll chat again soon. Thank you. All right, Jeff. We've got one more story for him out there. Got to do it to him. Had craving to, more. Had to do it to him. We don't have to, but you know what? We're <laughs> we going to do it for you people. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> the requests came in, and we're delivering. <laughs> so, folks, final story for you on this beautiful Friday morning. Walmart beat its earnings estimates. Um, shares rise just in general uh, higher. Um, there's a, a better outlook ahead of the holidays, and a lot of it has to do with their e-commerce sales. So the company said that e-commerce sales were up 41% thanks to particularly strong growth in online grocery. Uh, So in the U.S., there's 3,100 Walmart stores that are serving customers with online grocery um, uh, just ordering, and then you would pick it up in person. So it's not necessarily the delivery aspect of it. Um, there's another 1,400 stores that are delivering online orders specifically to uh, shoppers' homes. And the outlook for this is pretty solid. Online grocery sales are expected to capture close to 20% of total grocery retail by 2025, which would reach $100 billion um, of uh, you know, market revenue, basically, or market worth. And that's based on a separate study by the Food Marketing Institute, which was conducted by Nielsen. So what are your thoughts on this, Jeff? I mean, this is pretty 
pretty uh, potent information that points to online grocery mm -hmm. being not just a niche, but potentially a driving force in the grocery world. What yeah. do you think? I mean, I, this story really stuck out to me just on the timing of it because we on Wednesday just spoke about how Amazon is getting into the traditional grocery uh, market. So their chief competitor is probably Walmart. And I think it's interesting to see. I was pretty surprised to see just how big of a factor um, grocery is for Walmart. I did not know that they did that much revenue in just grocery. I typically thought of Walmart as, I don't know, electronics and, and house supplies, uh, clothing. Just It's a jack of all trades. But it kind of got me thinking, again, just in today's landscape with some of these big companies, what do you really define them as? You know, Uber has always said, oh, we're a technology company, although they're in sort of the transportation space. And is Walmart... <laughs> A grocery store yeah, basically right. it almost seems like walmart is a grocery store first and foremost but you could also make the argument it's an e-commerce platform you mentioned the 41 percent growth so the nimbleness that walmart has to gain revenue in a lot of different ways is got to be a big point of excitement for them and uh these numbers are pretty impressive and you know 20 percent of total grocery um being online by 2025 is something that I had not thought a ton about. We keep hearing about delivery and ordering groceries online and all of that, but um, it might be coming quicker than we even thought. So it's an exciting time for uh, the grocery space. Yeah. Well, I mean, at least for the large folks, Yeah. I wonder what a move like this or, you know, what stats like this are going to do for your HEBs, your Albertsons, your Krogers, your Market Streets, yeah. um, you know, the your Trader Joe's, the grocers that clearly have a strong national presence uh, but aren't Walmart and don't have the e-commerce infrastructure that Walmart has. Will they need to start expanding, uh, you know, their capabilities as well? How will they reach out um, with their e-commerce platform or online infrastructure for people looking to, uh, you know, to get their groceries delivered or picked up or at least ordered online. Um, this could be some trend-setting information here. And if other grocers don't tag along, you could see Walmart, Amazon, you know, kind of how they have been for the last several years, mm -hmm. staking out the majority claim in the market. So we'll see. But Jeff, We've got about 50 seconds here left. We're, we're out of time. Any final thoughts for the folks listening here? Yeah, I mean, we have a lot of great stuff on our site that I'd point them to. Um, we just wrapped up a couple interviews with some CEOs this week alone. So yeah. it was pretty busy and all that Skype content. It was a C-suite week. <laughs> yeah. Corner office week yes. at Market yeah. Style. So yeah, it was. Uh, it's been it's been great this last couple of weeks. So there's a lot of content to check out. Absolutely. Well, everyone, thank you for listening to Business Casual this Friday morning.